If you are looking for holistic wisdom and a plan to reclaim your fertility to help you create a healthy family for generations to come, you're in the right place. This is Fertile Minds Radio. Hello, my friends. This is Hillary Talbot Roland, and you are listening to Fertile Minds Radio, episode 107. Why Pleasure Matters with Coach Danielle Savory. Danielle is one of my favorite coaches on the planet because she is a beautiful mix of science and life coaching. She talks about what many may consider a forbidden topic in such an honest, funny, and loving way. Danielle Savory is a master coach helping high achieving women have mind blowing sex lives. She's the host of It's My Pleasure. And Danielle's work is at the intersection of neuroscience and sex and focuses on empowering women through better understanding and communicating their desires. She's been featured in a number of podcasts and is known for taking a smart, humorous approach to an often delicate subject. Hi, Danielle. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here with us today and our audience and to talk about sex and how to reclaim your pleasure. (laughs) Yes, I love it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. So I know your story a little bit and how you came to this work and I definitely resonate with it. I think I have a lot of similarities in in your like kind of twists and turns on our path to getting where we are, but I know our audience doesn't know. So can you explain to them the path that led you to unabashedly claiming the title of sex coach and helping thousands of women in the process? Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, I think it is one of those roundabout ways, but I wanted to be a a brain surgeon. And so I went to school with, you know, the pre-med whole background sort of thing. And in order to make myself, this sounds really weird, but in order to make myself more interesting, because I didn't think it was very interesting and I was a very social person, I did a minor in philosophy with a focus on Eastern philosophy, but Buddhist religion mostly. And my uh, mentor, or what is it called, like the guidance counselor or whatever, he was a Buddhist monk. And so I was heavily influenced by Buddhist philosophy and Eastern religion in general. And never actually meditated though. So I like went through all of academia and then had all of this and just from that cognitive understanding and the learning of it. And then, you know, went to England, I did a neuroscience program out there and then kind of had this like very veered off turn of like, you know what? I actually don't want to do this. I felt like there were so many things that I had set myself up for more from a people-pleasing standpoint or an achievement standpoint, but it didn't really resonate with me. I knew I loved people. I love science, but this was just not what my calling was. And so I closed the books turned away. And then I kind of fell apart (laughs) for a a while, a disintegration of, of, uh, you know, your self-concept and what am I supposed to do in the world and all of these sorts of things. And to make a long story short, I went through just a really dark period with my own health, um, both mental health and physical health. And I was bedridden for two years. And during this time, my best friend was really encouraging me to go to yoga. And she was way more woo-woo than me, a lot more granola than me and living in Portland, like yoga, this was before yoga became really mainstream. And so living in (laughs) Portland, which is already kind of hippie plus like yoga, I was like, I'm not really into that. Like I like science, (laughs) but she was like, just go, just go for me. So I finally went and I couldn't do a lot because of my physical restrictions. So I lay, I just laid on the mat and the teacher told me that was okay. She was like, just imagine you doing the moves as I'm saying them with your eyes closed. So I started using my imagination and she talked to me about listening to my, you know, my inner dialogue as I was following my breath. And it was my first time in that moment that I came close to like, you know, in close proximity with this whole inner thoughts, like that we're not, you know, that there is this other voice in there that's constantly talking and, you know, putting you down. And well, for me, my voice was putting me down and I was like, oh my gosh, like, no wonder I hurt so bad. It was like that, like a light bulb moment. Like I'm literally beating myself up all of the time. And that's kind of when everything shifted for me. I got out all both at the same time, both my neuroscience books and what I knew about the brain and 
hand in hand with what I had learned from Buddhist psychology. And I just dove deep into my own quote unquote research and learning both about these topics, the brain and mindfulness, and then seeking out teachers that could teach me more because this was still before mindfulness was even mainstream. It was still very woo-woo, but there were some pioneers um, of like neuropsychologists and neuroscientists who are also Buddhist practitioners who are bringing it into the scientific field. So I sought out their work. I started learning and training from them. And that gave me a language of the brain with the meditation, instead of it just being this kind of like woo-woo sort of spiritual practice. And then from there, it was just like learning about life coaching and how can I taught it. And I worked with a lot of women um, in women's circles and around things that I had struggled with, one of them being fertility and sex and the mind-body connection, and then turn that into coaching and the rest is history. <laughs> oh, I think that that's like, so speaks to your humanness where you were like, you had learned about it, but you didn't actually practice it. I had a similar experience. Like yeah, I had a Buddhist uh, teacher in undergrad and you know, she would make, make us meditate basically. Right. But yeah. then outside of that, like, I wasn't going to meditate in my, you know, my apartment with my friends, but I was hungry for learning about it. Yeah. And I feel like that's such an honest thing, especially when we're younger to do right. To just think if we can get the knowledge in our head, then it's okay. But we forget like the embodiment part. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And I think it wasn't also, maybe it was emphasized, but I didn't really capture that. You know, I was like, well, I know about it. I know how good it is for you, but it was just not like it was never translated. And I still think that now we do that with a lot of wisdom. You know, I know a lot of people that listen to like my podcast, for instance, and they get all this knowledge and then they think that's just going to change their experience of pleasure. And I'm like, you actually have to practice it. Like there are going to be shifts because our brain is going to start to rewire, but if you don't connect it with your body, you're not going to have the same impact. Yes. I think that's so important to remember. Cause it's like, I think we're conditioned that we just have to have this knowledge, but really unconditioned from connecting with our body and putting exactly. it in practice. Exactly. And I love that you have your roots in, in neurobiology. And I've had the pleasure of listening to you explain about our physiology, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And every time I hear it, I kind of like, oh yeah, like I'm built for this. <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> Can you give our audience a bit of a crash course on exactly how many nerve endings they have in their vulva? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because, okay. So most of the research out there says 8,000 nerve endings in like just the tip, the head of your clitoris, which is a lot <laughs> for, for, for comparison's sake, when you think about like the head of the penis, there's about 4,000 and that's how much larger, right. than the head of the clitoris. So it's like, this is such a small area with twice as many nerve endings, but now like some more recent research is finding anywhere up to 15,000. So it's saying between 8,000. And I've said, I've read some articles that say 15,000. So about there with our clitoris. And so when you look at everything and when you look at the way that, you know, if you're in like the cis heterosexual type relationship, right? Like a lot of what we're talked about or told about is the epitome of sex or like that place, that goal that we're getting to is penis and vagina. And <laughs> when you look at the anatomy and how we're wired, that's not how we are really meant to experience a lot of pleasure. When you just look at the vulva and the opening of the vulva, you'll definitely have the legs of the clitoris that go down. And those have nerve endings that kind of go around the opening to the vagina, but this isn't the way that most women experience pleasure. And there is a lot of techniques involved that we can stimulate more of these nerves, but just the straight up like P and V <laughs> is not really where most of us experience a lot of pleasure yet we think we're supposed to and our partners think we're supposed to and you know we've kind of grown up thinking like that's what we should be doing especially after you've been in a relationship with someone in a long time you're like oh well, we don't need to do all that foreplay and that messing around stuff let's just hop right into it 
And this is where the orgasm gap happens. And this is <laughs> why so many of us, you know, in heterosexual relationships, they say that the uh, woman in a heterosexual relationship is the least sexually satisfied amongst all of the humans. So there you go. What? And that's why. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you're right. Like in, you know, when you're dating and courting each other, there's a lot that goes into like anticipation of desire, right. And the buildup yes. and like wanting to explore and please each other. And then we get married and it's like, you know, or a union or however it is you decide to come together. And it's like, oh, this is all we do now, especially when you're trying for a baby. Right. Cause yes. that's the part that you need. Yes. And all that other stuff just goes out the window. And that's so crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And even when you think about it, like what you said, you know, when you're dating someone and all the anticipation and the desire and the leading up, but then there is that fooling around that might not include, you know, for whatever reason, if you're holding off from like, you know, the P and the V sort of sex, then <laughs> you are like, oh, this feels so good. Then it's going to feel even better when we get to do that. Right. You have this idea that it's going to feel even better. Well, the whole idea you're so aroused and you're feeling so good to begin with is because you're doing other things that usually involve clitoral stimulation that you don't do during sex. Right. So I don't know if I'm remembering this right from like way back in anatomy, but the, because we all start out with the same parts, but what you were yeah. describing is the, the clitoris and how the, you know, all the nerve endings having double as many as the, the penis. And then yeah. can we say that on, yeah. on podcast? I mean, I say so, all the things, we get censored. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, but when it turns into female organs and then it comes down on the sides with those legs, like essentially it's kind of making the, the case for like our penis lives outside of us, if you will. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And those legs coming down, those would turn into, you know, the scrotum, the balls, like that kind of thing. So if you look at these two structures, especially in embryology and the development of that, these are similar structures. Yeah. And these bits are all start the same and then they're organized differently. And so the nerve endings get spread out where they stay very concentrated in the female anatomy. Yeah. So I think I've actually heard you describe this before of like, the just expecting pleasure to come from penetration would be like akin to telling your partner that you're only going to touch a scrotum for the rest of yeah. <laughs> being together. You're just gonna, yeah. You're just going <laughs> to ball fondle. Like, what do you yeah. mean? Like, and that's the thing is like, you probably could get, you know, a, a man there eventually, right. right. Doing that, but it's got to take some time and there's probably got to be some sort of foreplay leading up to that before that would lead to anything. And, but, but most, <laughs> you know, cisgendered men would be like, wait, what? That's it. That's all you get. <laughs> like, I'm confused. You're, you're like, this is the main part over here where us women are like, this is the main part right here. You know? <laughs> Take a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That might be like a really good way to get your, your partner's attention of like, yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> what if? don't you love this? It feels so nice. Right. <laughs> <sighs> Do you think pleasure and orgasm affect fertility? And if so, could you explain why just from like a neurobiology point of view? Uh, this is a very weighted topic and I don't feel like I'm an expert to speak to this. I think that there is the myths right back. Like if you look into like fertility myths and midwife myths and these sort of things, then it talks a lot about the importance of orgasm just because of that contraction that happens in the vagina that like pulls the sperm up towards your egg. So there is, you know, that sort of like myth that goes around. There isn't, however, scientific evidence to to support that that's what's going on. So one of the things that they did research was like oxytocin, right? So oxytocin is released when we have orgasm. It also can be involved with fertility, but the studies that they did, I think it was like, I forget the exact number, but it was like 60 times the amount of oxytocin that they were injecting into women that they would actually have from a regular orgasm. So I like that study doesn't really count because we wouldn't have that much oxytocin in there. Um, but they did find a little bit of an uptick in that fertility. But again, this isn't a regular amount of oxytocin that you would produce with a regular type orgasm. Um, but when you talk about pleasure, 
you know, one of the things that I do feel like there is more conversation around, and I think you would probably be more privy to this conversation than me, but it's just how stress impacts our fertility or how stress impacts mm-hmm. our overall, you know, um, hormone you know, interaction with our hormones or our cycle or all these sorts of things. And there is a lot of very well-known studies out there, right? That when we are experiencing high levels of stress, that that can interrupt that access in our brain that would induce hormones, right? They induce the hormones that are related to our cycle and related to like the releasing of the egg. And pleasure does have a huge impact on our stress. It can really help our stress, but you know, what I would really just say is, you know, whether, and usually, you know, if you're struggling a lot with fertility, then your stress levels are through the roof, right? It's not just stress of like every day. Like I think we're in a society where we're dealing with so much stress to begin with, but if you're also dealing with the stress of wanting a baby and getting pregnant, that is a very elevated level of stress all of the time. The grief that goes into that, the pressure that goes into that, the rejection of body that can go into that with your narrative. Like there's so many uh, ways that we're really elevating our stress level in that sense. And so, yes, in a roundabout way, I do feel like pleasure can help, but it's whether or not it directly impacts our fertility, because the science is still out there, it will help your stress. And more importantly, like our mental health is always important, you know, and just giving ourselves credit to like, feel good, like feel good in our body to like meet ourselves with compassion, to be able to like reduce our stress levels. So regardless if it has a direct impact on your fertility, it will have a direct impact on your overall well-being, And I think that makes it worth it, especially if you are facing something that is challenging and an emotional strain in so many ways. Like why would we not want to support ourselves and create kind of a buffer system in our nervous system for what we're going through? And I think that's what pleasure does. It creates more resilience and it creates almost like a balm. I like to think of it as like a honey to your sore throat. It's like a balm to the stress level and to uh, the emotional struggles that we're going through. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I hadn't read any literature either. I mean, cause like such a hard thing to study. Right. So I was just mm-hmm. curious and just to our audience, like by no means am I saying, if you're not having an orgasm that you're now doing fertility wrong, cause I feel yes. like there's a, like, it's already an internal pressure cooker. Right. Yes. Um, you know, I just know in like Chinese medicine, they talk about how orgasm can release the liver chi, which then helps to de-stress you. Right. So mm-hmm. like, this is thing humans have talked about this for a very long time. And in terms of the stress response, you know, it is so real And it with fertility. I think it becomes like the chicken or the egg of like, what is stressing you out the infertility or the, the treatments or your own mind. And then, you know, that has the unfortunate side effect of, you know, your brain just starts thinking that it's not safe to procreate and drops your sex hormones. And, you know, we don't have enough oxytocin and for those of you listening that don't know what oxytocin is, it's the, the tendon befriend hormone mm-hmm. um, yes. that we get when we we birth, but we get it from pleasure too. Yep. And I have a feeling why they had to like put 60 times as much in those injections because it's half-life is a whole three seconds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What are some of the like tips that you have in terms of like when you notice that you're stressed or trying to kind of downregulate your nervous system before you enter into intimacy with your partner? Yeah. Well, I think that's what, you know, is really important. Like even as we talk about orgasm, I feel that there is so much stress, like I said, that we're dealing with, whether it's the fertility stress, stress of everyday life. But if you start thinking of like, oh, I have to feel really good in sex orgasm or not, that's another pressure level. So let's not even think <laughs> about like, oh, I have to have an orgasm here because performance related stress is very real. And that's really amped up especially when it comes to getting ready. And so what I recommend, number one, is consistently getting out of the stress cycle. You know, we can feel our body is kind of hijacked and triggered, you know, whether it's from a traffic that you're in or an email you got or to-do list that you still have going on or anything else, right? You know, thinking about your fertility is creating more stress and having that kind of panicky feeling in your chest. So learning 
tools to consistently get you out of the stress cycle are so important. You know, we, we hear about meditation. I have tons of mindfulness exercises that I do with my clients just to really drop that, but breathing deep into your belly that stimulates the vagus nerve that really tells our system, like we're not in danger, exercise, all of those sorts of things. But I like to think about when you are getting ready for an intimate time is a bridge to the bedroom. That's what I call it is creating a bridge to the bedroom. So giving yourself a chance, even before you connect with your partner to connect with yourself, to go in and be like, okay, what am I noticing right now? Like, what am I coming to this time with myself with? Like, maybe it's thoughts spinning in your head. Maybe there's some agitation in your body, like really just taking note and taking stock of what's already going on. And then asking yourself, like, what do I need right now? Like, what do I need to have this invitation to kind of simmer down, to calm down, to connect more with your body, to connect more with your breath. And so creating that space ahead of time. And it sounds kind of you know, silly for those of us who have been exposed to most of the media, because the way that we usually think about sex is like, oh, let's kiss and then make out. And then with fertility, it can kind of be like, okay, it's time, let's go. And you just like hop into the sack. And so really creating that time for you before is going to help so much, not just in lowering kind of that agitation or that stress or tension that you're experiencing in your body, but also the ability to connect with pleasure when you do connect with your partner, to feel the touch of their fingers, to feel the kisses, to notice when your mind is wandering and bringing it back to the body. So really giving yourself the time and the space to have that bridge to the bedroom ahead of time is incredibly important and it really will have a huge impact on your experience of pleasure. I love that. I think that we don't give enough time to those things that we want. Like we we might say like, yeah, we want a better sex life or we want better intimacy, but, and more pleasure. But then if you like, look at what you're doing through the day and like, if you're listening to this, you're probably like, I don't have time to a bridge to the bedroom. Right. Like, yeah, it's so everything's so scheduled. But like, if you want that, then you have to kind of, you have to create more time for it. Right. You have mm-hmm. to, you have to kind of be act on purpose. Yeah. Um, I think that's something we, we, I think we're conditioned to just think that sex is going to happen and like, Ooh, our partner wants us. And then we're just immediately going to feel pleasure yeah. and oh, um, yeah, that's probably not what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> right? And this is why I'm a huge advocate of scheduling sex, like fertility or not, you know, I'm a sex coach and I schedule sex with my partner because I know how much better it will be when I have that scheduled. And the reason is, is because when you schedule it, then you can prepare your mind, you can prepare your body, you can get ready. You know, maybe you need to prepare your space because there's laundry everywhere. Or if you do have other people in the house and you need to create privacy, right? Like all these things that turn us off and distract our attention, you can take care of when you know it's coming. And so many people are under this, you know, guys that like, Oh, it's going to take away the fun of it. It's going to take away the spontaneity. Like, no, like, do you care more about spontaneity or do you care more about like feeling good and having a good time and like having your body light up? Cause I would choose that anytime. And there's so many things that you can do to make it more fun, make it more pleasurable, make it more orgasmic when you know it's coming and you're not surprised or you're not trying just to make it spontaneous. And then pretty soon, nobody's initiated and there's this confusion and rejection and all the other things that can go along with it. I like that. I mean, I I think my audience is kind of maybe over planning sometimes, right. Or like maybe they get stuck in just scheduling sex during their fertile window, but I would challenge them to schedule sex outside of that. And Mm -hmm. I have one client who does it really well. She has taken to just making a calendar invite for her partner with emojis mm-hmm. <laughs> on certain yeah. days and making sure that it's outside of the fertile window so that he's somewhat like, Oh, this is happening all the time. And she said, when she did that outside of the window, then he, his performance anxiety kind of came down a little bit. Yeah. Um, and this idea of like, Oh, I'm not going to just have these five days during the month. Like this is, this can happen in other times. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's really important to, um, to, have this as an ongoing thing because you're practicing like 
pleasure is a skill and we don't think about pleasure as a skill, but we tend to, you know, the brain is always going to go to threats or things that we need to fix or problem solve. And we have to train our brain how to turn towards the good and how to turn towards pleasure. And then we sensitize the brain to experiencing pleasure, not only just noticing when it's there, but being able to amplify it, to bring it in. And that's what creates the resilience. And so thinking that you're just going to feel really good because you, you know, expect your body to feel pleasured and relaxed and all of these things, but you're only doing it like once a month is ludicrous. Like that's like thinking that you should be able to, you know, run 15 miles, but you're only running 15 miles, like once a month for like two days in a row. Like that's just not how we work in any sort of system. So to expect our body to be able and our brain to be able to do that once a month is, it's just not really how we work. So it's really, how do we implement these skills that are required for us to be open to pleasure and open to just lowering that nervous system and connecting our body on the regular so that when we really want to amplify it and have those like orgasmic sessions, those are so much more possible because the body's like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. We just did this yesterday with our cup of tea no problem. I can know how to turn to pleasure. And we just train ourselves to be able to do that. Yeah. So train, you're saying train yourself with pleasure and small things, not just sex and like yes. in, in the daily, right. You mm-hmm. know, how your, how your clothes feel on your skin or the a warm bath or your tea or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I've heard you talk, you have this concept about the three pillars of pleasure. And when I first heard you talk about the first pillar being like, creating safety. I was like, Oh my God, this is totally what's happening to so many of our clients. Cause they're, yeah. you know, they're in that constant stress. I would say when somebody hits my door for acupuncture, they're usually in like reverse nervous system, right? They're in fight or flight mm-hmm. 85% of the time instead of 15. Mm-hmm. And it's like constant stress, but they don't, it's happened for so long that they don't even understand that's happening. Yeah. And when you hear this concept of like creating safety, I think a lot of us, at least my brain went to like, immediately it was like, well, that's funny. No one's chasing you or breaking you into, into your house. Right. But it was, it was different than that. And the way that you explain it is just so nuanced and like, we don't even realize that we're feeling unsafe. So can Mm -hmm. you talk more about that? Yeah. So with the three pillars of pleasure, this is really just what I came up with, like for us to create the most orgasmic conditions for us to be able to receive pleasure. And like you said, that first one is creating safety, but it's not what the brain thinks of safety. You're like, why would I not feel safe? This is, you know, my partner that I'm in love with. Like, of course I feel safe with them, but it's, is our body and more specifically our nervous system experiencing or showing signs that they feel safe. And that's like at ease and, and pressure, you know, feeling like you should is a huge one. That's going to create the nervous system to be triggered into this fight, flight, or freeze, especially if it's gone on for a long time, we have a lot of you know, trauma and, you know, we all have different definitions of trauma, but like going through certain types of fertility and that pain and that loss and that grief does create a trauma response, does create, you know, trauma in the body. And so learning how to recreate that connection with our body and that safety with our body. And I know for, you know, for me, a lot of that safety was just in how I treated my body. So that's another way that we create like kind of unhabit, you know, like unhabitable, inhabitable. I don't know how to say that word unhabit, like, you know what I'm saying? Not like, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, not like, not like, a, like you don't want to habitate it. Right. So it's not like a good refuge. Let's put it that way. Right. So when you're creating a refuge in your body in this place that feels really safe, you have to ask yourself, how am I speaking to my body? How am I in relation with my body? Because going through fertility, there can be so much rejection of body or the body feels separate, right? Like the systems of the body, the physicality of the body. That's like, why is this just not working? When really you're saying, why am I not working? What's wrong with me? You're speaking to your body in the 
this way that is rejecting and putting down and basically telling your body it's not enough. And that that's a really painful relationship. If you imagine saying those kind of words and that kind of dialogue or narrative to a human being, they wouldn't feel safe. So we have become the abuser, not intentionally at all. I really want you to <laughs> anybody listening, this isn't something we're doing on purpose. This is a normal, like reactive response to, you know, something not working or a body not working how we want it to. And so we become, you know, this verbal internal abuser and we, our body becomes the abused and our body becomes this, this place that has been dealing with our constant rejections and feeling beat up, not alone what it's going through with perhaps fertility treatments that are really hard on it. And so creating that safety again, like, Hey, I got you. I love you. Like, I know you're doing your best. We're going to get through this together, regardless of if we get to the means that we want to, you know, like, how do you create safety with your body that it isn't this relationship that you're accepting of your body only when it's performing or doing what you want? And I think that's really where it comes in to play when it comes to fertility is that trust between you and your body and that genuine relationship. Like I'm, I might not love it that we're not having a baby, but I can be accepting of this and still be on your side, even if. Oh, I think that's so important for so many listeners to hear because yeah. we are oftentimes our own worst enemy. Like it's, um, because of how the brain is conditioned, right. To think negatively and to get out of the cave and to, to search for more. And especially if you've been kind of, um, habituated into type a, like I call myself a recovering type a, or, you know, those thoughts, that was one of the craziest things when I came to life coaching was like, cause I had meditated for like 15 years first and, you know, I can watch my thoughts, but I, when I really started like writing them down and doing models and stuff, I was like, I am like 100% that bitch up there. Yes, <laughs> That's me. Totally. Right? Totally. Words of Lizzo. Like, yes. But not a bad bitch. Like, no. Yeah. No, it's like a negative, inside. like mean bitch, like yes. a mean girl. Yes. And yeah. it kind of caught me by surprise. Yeah. Yeah. It totally catches you by surprise when you're really starting to pay attention to this. I just did this uh, really powerful guided class in my membership. And so many women were just walking away with tears because we don't realize the type of relationship that we have with our body. You know, it's this conditional relationship most of the time, or this relationship that's really founded on performance and rejection and looks and, you know, what we can do with it. And instead of like looking at it as this vehicle of doing life and being in a loving relationship with it. So I think that's the biggest thing with creating safety is helping rekindle and heal that relationship between you and your body. So it feels safe. Like that's, what's going to lower the pressure. Like, Hey, if this doesn't go how we want it to this first time, like I'm still going to be here. Like, I got you. Like, I got you. We got, we got each other, right. That kind of calm tone and talk. Well, yeah. And I think that that can go so far in terms of like, if that's the piece that you can control and either like me, mediating, going into a trauma response or remediating if that's already happened, you know, Mm -hmm. and and it's so important, like that. I don't think that there's a lot of like light cast on how traumatizing fertility treatments are. I think the literature Mm -hmm. has it at like 25%, which I would say in my clinical experience is probably more like 40. Um, and you know, like, because we don't want trauma to be happening, we push it away, but then it like grows and grows and grows, Mm -hmm. but you know, just being able to watch your thoughts and notice and to check in with yourself and see if you are disconnected can kind of give you some idea of whether or not you're, you're in a trauma response. It doesn't have to be as like, um, intense as like you walk back into your doctor's office and you start shaking and crying and like, then you're like, Whoa, something's not right. You know, it can be like much more subtle than that. And, and even just kind of checking in with yourself and, and trying to understand, or if you have a therapist or a coach, like, is it, what I'm experiencing, is it trauma and how to kind of stop that before it gets so much bigger. Um, mm-hmm. but in terms of like the mindset piece, you know, being so important, I see or hear like a lot of thoughts that come up, like, especially around like not wanting to have sex. And I mm-hmm. myself am totally guilty of these that like kind of yeah. get stuck like a mantra 
Yeah. Like I know for so long, mine was like, I'm too tired. But then mm-hmm. when I started noticing, like, am I too physically tired? Or am I mentally tired? Cause if there was this other thing that I want to do, would I like get up and do it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, or it's, I'm not fertile right now. So like, do you have any advice in terms of like watching your thoughts when, when sex is presented to you and your immediate habituation is no, like, what would you offer to do? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, the biggest thing is to start to become aware. I like to think of them as your turnoffs, right? Like we have turn off thoughts, we have turn off behaviors, we have turn off things in our environment. And so starting to see kind of like, what are, these thoughts that are habits, right. That are habits of the mind that I know are going to come up so we can strategize around them. Like if you're just waiting for it to be in the moment, it doesn't really work. But if you start noticing what those thoughts are, right. Like, Oh, he just, you know, maybe he just wants sex or like, I am too tired. Right. Just start writing them down and becoming aware. And we, if we just expand that window of awareness that we can start to have choice so we can start to see, Oh, my brain is having like a habitual mental event again. Right. And that habitual (laughs) mental event is saying I am too tired. Like whether or not that's true, usually what's going on is we have these you know, signals like sex is initiated. And then it's just this flood of thoughts, not because that's actually how we're relating to it or feeling, but it's because we haven't put some intentionality behind how we would like to think about it, behind how we want to think about it. And these thoughts have been inserted in the brain's like, Hey, let me help you out. I'm going to keep thinking these because every time sex comes up, these are the, these are the things we think. So the brain thinks it's helping you out by just, you know, taking the learning system of the brain and just grabbing onto these and being like, this is what we think every time sex is initiated. So we really have to expand our awareness. Okay. What are those thoughts that's creating resistance in my body and in my behavior? do a download of them, (laughs) you know, work with a coach, get coached, do self-coaching on them, but really be intentional. Like, how do I want to think about this? How do I want to create safety? How do I want to connect with my partner? How might I create desire? Um, And then that's when we can start using that window of awareness, like, oh, there's, you know, like resistant Regina coming up again with all of our thoughts against sex great, Regina, but actually this is how I feel. This is how I'm choosing to feel, you know, on purpose or choosing to think on purpose. And so that's really, you know, how we start looking at those and deciding what is it that we're trying to create? And if you want to try and create desire, are those thoughts leading to you feeling more desire or are they pushing it pushing it away. So that's what I would say. The main thing is, is when we notice all of these things, realizing they're not necessarily true. And so I start with all of my clients, just when you notice a no in your body or a no in your brain, the no is the habit. So if we can stop that habit, just say, maybe (laughs) like maybe, and then create that space for yourself. Maybe that's when you go do the bridge to the bedroom and check in with your body. Maybe that's when you do a thought download. Maybe that's when you just go on a walk and do something totally different, but doing something where you're creating space where it might be a yes, it might be a no, but you're not in the habit of a no any longer. You've created that space between it. I hadn't really ever thought about that as a habit, but it totally is like, it's just, oh, yeah. just a big neural groove. That's yep. it. That's it. Yep. It's just a habit. Okay. So I have a a question that's kind of more of a, on the sensitive, well, I mean, this whole topic is very sensitive, right? But um, I've heard you speak before about um, losing your first two pregnancies. And I'm so sorry that you endured that. And you really spoke about how it impacted your chronic pain and your sex life and your relationship to yourself And I know that there's just so many listeners out there that have similar circumstances, or if they haven't had a loss like that, they're terrified of that happening. And I just wonder what um, advice or coaching you would give them, whether it's happened or they're experiencing it ahead of time unnecessarily. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the main things that I love that's happening now in our society is even though it's still more hush hush, we can still find those communities 
of people that have experienced loss. And I think that's so important when it comes to this, because it can feel like such an isolating experience. And that was my experience. I felt so alone. And even though I was in this loving relationship, and of course my husband was sad too, I was like, you don't know what it feels like because you're not in my body, right? Like you didn't like have that relationship that I had to the hope and the dream and the baby growing and all of these sorts of things. And so it felt very, very isolating. So anything that was the first thing that I really learned how to do was when we isolate, when we isolate in our experience, whether it is struggling with fertility or pregnancy loss, then you immediately make your your pain more of a suffering situation. Cause you're like, I'm so alone in this. Nobody else knows what I'm doing. Like it, and isolation increases our experience of pain and suffering. And so I learned from one of my self-compassion teachers to really just be like, Oh, of course, you know, of course I feel this way. Like that's the first part, like just the acknowledgement of how hard it was and the grief that was there. And then, and other people too know what loss feels like. So you can even expand it a little bit into maybe not this loss, right? But like other people also experience grief. Other people, this is part of the human experience to experience grief and to experience loss. Like just like my experience, other humans have also gone through these emotions, right? So we we help ourselves be part of the whole human experience, even if they haven't been through your exact circumstance as a human experience, like pain is part of life. Loss is part of life. Like that's part of the human experience. And just that acknowledgement of it, it's not dismissing it. It's like, we're very aware of it. It's very real, but it allows you to just put yourself into the human experience a little bit, which immediately allows for you to have more compassion towards yourself and for humanity in general. And that's so important with that, that healing process. But for me, it was, it really, um, you know, I didn't have all the tools that I had now, nor did I have the knowledge or the training or all of that. And it just, it was that rejection of body that we were talking about. It was like my body became my worst enemy. Like I was dealing with physical issues to start with. And then like, now it can't, now it can't carry a baby. I was like, what it like, what it like, thanks a lot body. It was like my own worst enemy. Like you're keeping me from the thing that I want the most. And you're keeping me from even living my life and being able to do other things that I wanted to do. And it was that constant narrative against myself. Like what's wrong with me? Everything's broken. This is never going to work. You know, it's that where we take that, we almost take away from ourselves experiencing just the grief because we add all of the other layers. We add the rejection of body. We add the brokenness. We add the hopelessness. So now we've taken something that is very clean human experience and we've added layers and layers of suffering on it, which just keeps us in that cycle of more, more pain and more suffering. And so for me, it was learning how to be with the clean pain of grief and how to stay with that clean pain and process that in my body and notice when my mind wanted to go to hopelessness or blame or brokenness or any of the stories that went with myself. And that allowed me to have so much more compassion just for my experience, but also for my body itself. I'm so glad that you brought up that idea of clean pain and like Cause I think we think it's all or nothing, right? We, our brains want to avoid that suffering yeah. so badly. And so that acceptance, it's like, we push it away and push it away. Cause we think that if we surrender into it, it's either going to like consume us whole or somehow that like surrender is quitting when it's not, it's just feeling right. that pain that is inherently human. But then there's that other part that's optional that some people might call like dirty pain, right? Mm -hmm. That like, then you keep it on and you make it mean something terrible about yourself or your body. And it's totally unnecessary, but often so much, so often a, a habit, if that's yeah. how you've like made yourself achieve goals was by being hard on you. I think that that can just be there without even noticing that we're amplifying an already horrific situation Yeah, by not managing our brain, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I think the thing 
that I didn't understand when I was first introduced to this idea of clean pain and dirty pain was when I heard words like, oh, it's so unnecessary. I was like, I would immediately go to blame and blaming myself now for this too. Like not only am I doing this wrong right now, I can't even like, now I'm can't even manage my mind. Right. Or now I'm making things worse on myself, or now I'm creating all this suffering. And it just felt like this, like constant blame and shame cycle that I couldn't get out of. So if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, great. Now I'm doing that wrong too. Please like, put your hand on your heart and just close your eyes and take the deepest breath. And that's not what's going on. Like, of course your brain is going to all these places, like truly deeply, like that's what the brain's supposed to do. And we can even witness that dirty pain that our brain is throwing on or all the layers with so much love, like, Oh baby girl, like, of course, of course you're blaming yourself. That's what you've been doing your whole life. Like I get it. And we're going to learn how to, we're going to learn how to just be with the grief now, you know, so really even being on your own side in the process of awareness, because sometimes creating more awareness around the way that our brain is like delivering all these thoughts that make it feel that much worse can create more shame (laughs) because now we think we're doing that to ourselves and now we're doing it all wrong. Right. (laughs) So even when you're increasing your awareness or listening to this or learning how to be more mindful of where your brain's going, like your practice is being the compassionate observer of your brain. It's not like, Oh, great, Danielle, there you go. Being a bitch to yourself again. Like we're not doing that. Right. It's like, Oh, baby girl, of course your brain's going there. I got you. Let's just watch it for a minute and then you're coming back to the body. Yeah. How human of me, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Nothing's gone wrong. It's like having thoughts and meditation. Congratulations. Your brain is working exactly how it is. Yes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So human. And like, I love that you like named your, an alter ego type Regina. Like Mm -hmm. I do that too. Like because it gives me like a buffer, right? I know it makes me sound like a crazy person too, but like, my, my inner saboteur is named, uh, Beth from what's that show on TV out West in Montana. I don't know, but there, I know there is one somewhere in the West called Yellowstone, but I don't yes. know if that's when you're talking about, yes, I've never seen it, about. but I'm guessing, yes. Oh, perfect. Yay. <laughs> and she literally like blows everything up. And so when yeah. I started to, to watch myself think, and I was like, note, like being on to myself and like the verbiage and the tone, like I could literally be like, Oh, there goes Beth, that part of your mind again, that wants to blow this up because it's too good for you to hold. Right. Right. Yeah. I have a lot of people. I have a Connie. I have a Regina. I have like, you know, Maxine, like the old card, the old lady with like, that was always like Maxine. And she was all crinkly face comic. Like I've got a Maxine in there, you know, like there's all these different things, but from like, it does, it does sound crazy. But when we see it as that, then you're immediately separating yourself from the thoughts. And that's when it gives us choice. So it is from a neuroscience place like actually helpful to do that. So right. <laughs> you're not crazy yeah, like if you or hurt out of your yeah. brain and they sat next to you and they went everywhere with you. Yeah. You'd be like, Oh, that's not me. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We're creating that separation, which is what we need to do with our thoughts. So you have an amazing podcast called it's my pleasure. Mm-hmm. Your last episode was so good. You talked about like how the circumstances of motherhood can kind of derail your pleasure. And I feel like the first two were really prevalent in fertility. So I think if somebody is wanting to check you out, they should go listen to that because the first two um, kind of diversions I see in my fertility patients all the time. And, the, and if they can overcome those patterns and that, that hurdle of the second one being what we've just talked about, like being hard on ourselves unnecessarily, then they're kind of like protecting their investment of their sex life and their pleasure when the baby does come right halfway there, but your podcast is amazing. And if you haven't subscribed to it, you totally should, if you're listening. And I know you recently also gave Instagram the middle finger (laughs) because they kept (laughs) messing with you and like the algorithm thinking that you were like, peddling sex, not talking about sex or something crazy like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say that I think it's so awesome that you like walk your talk and you were like, no, I don't feel safe in my body right now. Like not doing this. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I left and it wasn't, you know, it was part of it was censorship, but I think it's just like the mental health that I think a lot of us talk about in general with social media, whether it's the compare and despair or just the habit, right? You know, it's like when you talk to people about quitting smoking cigarettes and they don't aren't smoking anymore, but they just notice their hand immediately goes to their pocket if they're going on a walk or taking a lunch break or going to a bar because that mind-body connection between like you know, reaction or habit or similar circumstances. And I do feel like I had that with my phone and with social media, it was just like this dead space. So it's like, you just grab your phone and you check real quick or you scroll real quick. And I just wanted to feel free of that too. You know, it was the censorship. It was the constant frustration. That was a huge part of it. It was just the like, I feel like a lot of the shoulds that I wasn't having good management around anymore, like, oh, I should post again, or I should do this, or I should, you know, like, I didn't, I just, it's like, sometimes we can change our mind. And sometimes we can just change the circumstance. And in this situation, I was like, I just, I just don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to be on it for addictive person, you know, reasons, you know, mental health, compare and despair, that constant feeling like I needed to show up and kind of, yeah, just <laughs> be something for somebody else all the time. Um, that's was what it was starting to feel like. And so I'm hoping to come back sometime and have a different relationship. But right now this was a necessary break for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes we have to just take a stand for ourselves and yes, that's something I offer my clients all the time of like, Hey, you can take a break from social media. If it's making you feel bad. Like I know for myself, if I scroll, I have to mm -hmm. like then do mind work. Cause it's literally like that algorithm gets me and I'm like, not enough and all of that. Yeah. So it's triggering. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening and you think you can't divorce yourself from social media, this woman owns a huge business and she did it. So, so can you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there was a lot of people upset um, from my audience. And then a lot of people too, that are like colleagues or in the business world that are like, this is the death of your business and your presence. And, you know, like, like you're, you're positive, but there's been a lot of like, okay, let's see how this goes, you know, sort of eye rolling. And so it can be can be scary for a lot of different ways. And now it's like, my friends are like, what are you even up to? <laughs> so it's like, it's been fun. Cause it's like regular conversations or sending my family, like texts with photos, you know, of what I'm doing rather than feeling like I needed to post that on social media for strangers. Well, I think it's awesome. And you don't know if you don't try, right? Exactly. And like you said, you can always change your mind. I think we we forget that it's not set in stone when we make no. these choices, right? No. No. So besides listening to your amazing podcast, if people are like, oh my gosh, yes, I need this unicorn woman in my life. Where should they go to find you? Uh, yeah, you can go to my email list is the best way to keep a hold of me. Other than the podcast, I give you know, little tips and things to think about all of the time. I think that I sent you the link so we can drop that in show notes, um, or I will send you the link, <laughs> but I think it's just danielsaverycoaching.com slash subscribe, or I have a membership. And these are the kind of things that we work on all of the time in the membership. If you want guided meditations, like I was talking about bridge to the bedroom or pleasurable preparations, or just be in a community where women are talking about, pleasure and sex and healing the relationship with their body. That's the turned on woman. And so you can find that. I don't, I think it's daniellesavory.com slash the T-O-W, but <laughs> that will probably be in the show notes too. So our listeners are place. super hyper intelligent. They can find yes. it. They'll scour yes. your website and we'll yes. all make sure we drop it in the, in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you so much for just sharing your wisdom and your time. I really so greatly appreciate you coming on the show. And I know our so, audience does too. I'm so happy you invited me. This is this is where it all began in the struggles with fertility. So I'm honored to full circle back around and talk about it. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hopefully we'll have you back on again. Okay. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye for now. Hey, if you're interested in taking this work deeper in your life, let's work together. Go to fertilemindsradio.com to schedule a free, no obligation chat to discuss which level of support would be best for you. Or click on the link in my bio over on Instagram at Fertile Minds Radio. It really is that simple.